week, there's a women's class that meets across the street. They're really noisy. <laughs> no, across the hallway. And um, anyway, I was invited to teach last week, which was really fun. Uh, I'm just now getting over the um, perfume inhalation. Uh, it really made me weak and uh, affected my thinking for a while. <clears throat> Good to see everybody. Hey, we're in 1 Samuel today. 1 Samuel chapter 30, second part. We'll finish 1 Samuel 30 today. Lord willing, 31 next week. That's the end of the book. We've done our best to stretch it out as long as we could, but that's the way it is. We come to the end. So next week, we'll finish 1 Samuel. Week after, we're going to start Galatians. Galatians. And that's in the New Testament, just trying to help you out. We've been in the Old Testament for so long. <clears throat> there is another part of the Bible, and you're welcome to go there as well. So it'll be Galatians uh, after 1 Samuel. Let me fill you in on what you reviewed last week. There's a group called the Amalekites. They attacked a city called Ziklag. It's only significant because David and his 600 men and families lived there. David and his men were out and about doing stuff. They came back to Ziklag. They found the city burned to the ground. Not only that, all their livestock was missing, and make matters worse, their families were gone, wives and children taken captive by the Amalekites. They wept. Strong fighting men wept. Family is gone. They don't know if they'll ever see him again. David does the right thing. He makes his appeal to God, prays for guidance. God says, go after him. I'll be with you. I'll give you victory. That's all David needed to hear. So that's what happened. Now we'll pick up the action, verse 9. So this is chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, verse 9. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind, we'll talk about them in a second, remained. For now, let me tell you that this brook, Besor, is about 15 or 20 miles south of Ziklag. The brook Besor is mentioned in the Bible only in this chapter, 1 Samuel 30. It's been mentioned earlier on, now it's mentioned again. It's a wadi. I don't know if you heard that expression, W-A-D-I. A wadi is a depression in the ground, most of the time dry. It's been formed by a flow of water during the rainy season. They fill up. Uh, they could flood, overflow their banks. Anyway, the water is powerful. It causes kind of a depression in the ground. This is one of them, the brook Besor. There were two main wadis in this part of Israel uh, in the Negev Desert, Negev, southern part of Israel. They can be quite dangerous during the rainy season. In fact, tragically, just this last week, 10 Israeli teenagers on a field trip with their school were drowned in one of these brooks, one of these wadis that overflowed its banks. They should not have been there. There's an investigation as to why they were, why the adult supervisors permitted it to happen. But anyway... It happens frequently over history. People die in the floodwaters of these wadis. So Besor is one of these wadis. Here's what happens. Verse 10, David pursued he and the 400 men for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook. Besor remained behind. So 200. Hey, Laurie, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you for doing that. Just because you sang doesn't mean you get a seat. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for doing that. Tell James thank you for playing. Really appreciate it. Um, so here's the deal. 
Why were the 200 exhausted? Now, think about this. The journey from Ziklag to this brook, Bethsor, is about 15 to 20 miles. You have to understand the terrain. It's hot. It's arid. It's uphills, downhills. There's soldiers on a march. To do that march in that day might have been taking them three days. But before they did that, they had to march from a place called Aphek back to Ziklag. That's over 60 miles. When they completed that march, they got back to their home city, and they saw all their families gone. They didn't hang around. They made haste to try to get them back. So after a 60-mile march, they're making a 20-mile march, and on top of the physical exhaustion, what would you feel like? If you go back to your hometown, you have just won victory in battle, time to rest. You don't have a town. It's burnt to the ground. Everything you own is gone. Your family is gone. The emotional exhaustion caught up with these 200 physical and emotional limitations. They couldn't cross the brook. They couldn't go on any, any further. They, they were not fit to fight at this point. So 200 stayed back. My guess is this was a bit of a discouragement to David. Remember, he's the commander of this army. You only got 600 to begin with. You are, you are greatly outnumbered by the Amalekites. And now your forces are pared down even more. You only have 400. But being a good commander, my guess is he, if he was discouraged, you don't let that on to the troops. You press on. But I think what really helped David press on is the assurance he got from God earlier in the chapter. God said, go get him. I'll give you victory. Folks, what else keeps us marching on? I mean, you run into all kinds of stuff in life, though you be a Christian. Hurts, losses, diseases, afflictions surprising, painful things. Sometimes you say, am I going to make it? Yeah, we're marching to Zion. We're marching onward to glory. God has promised us ultimate victory, and that keeps us going. That keeps us going. So David presses on in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the field. Unusual. This is not Egypt. This is the southern part of what was then called the land of Canaan. How's this Egyptian there? An Egyptian, they found him in the field. They brought him to David. They gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. How he even survived is amazing to me. I mean, I've been in that neck of the woods. It is dry and barren. It gets real cold at night. How's he going to make it three days, three nights, no food, no water? Well, anyway, some of David's guys, I suppose reconnaissance guys who knows what they came upon this guy and they fed him they fed him what they ate i know that they ate what they fed him because a few chapters earlier first samuel 25 verse 18 i'll read you this then abigail abigail was married to a guy who was a creep he was just a knucklehead he showed no support to david and the boys and she wanted to make up for where her husband failed so she provided some food. Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, and here we go, a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. You see, so what they ate, they gave to this poor guy, this Egyptian guy who they came upon in the desert. Then verse 13, David said to him, to whom do you belong? Now, why he say that? Because David knew he was a slave. He could discern that. That was this man's lot in life. He was owned. A person was owned, think about it, by another human being. He was an Egyptian man. He's not in Egypt. He's just wandering in the desert. To whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt. 
a servant of an Amalekite. Oh, my goodness, what thoughts are going through David's mind right now? It was the Amalekites who burned down the city and took away his family. This man served an Amalekite master. He said, my master has left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. Perish the thought that a people group would ever so devalue the worth of human life than when one of its own is afflicted or needy, we abandon them in the desert. Rather than providing medical care, they saw this guy to be a liability. So his master left him to die in the desert. Folks, everybody's got a master. Everyone is mastered by something or someone. You better make sure your master is good to you. You know, our master has requirements for us. They're stiff. Sometimes our master requires us to experience the hurts and throes of life. I got that. But I'll tell you this about our master. He will never abandon us in the desert. We're plenty sick, sin sick. I know that. But our master will never give up on us, leave us to die in the desert. No way. Make sure you choose the right master. When I became a Christian, a couple of my relatives, one in particular, a brother-in-law, <clears throat> he said to me, this Jesus, this, <laughs> this Jesus, well, he's just a crutch for you. You're mastered by him. And I told the man, that's a high compliment. You're right. Who's your master? I'll tell you who his was. While he was speaking to me, he had a martini in his hand right here like that. I mean, my brother-in-law could never have a conversation without getting lubricated. That was his master. Mine was Jesus. I'll take Jesus. His master would not be kind to him. His master would exploit him and hurt him. My master wants to help me. Well, this poor guy didn't have the right master. So he continues his story, verse 14. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites. Now, the Negev, remember, it's the desert area in the southern part of Israel. Who are the Cherethites? Don't know exactly. There are some suggestions. Some think they're a branch of the Philistines. Uh, Others think, no, they're a separate ethnic group of their own. Many think they came from uh, an island in the Mediterranean called Crete. Crete. That's what they think. And then they sailed over. They got over to Israel and settled there. Anyway, the Amalekites not only raided Ziklag, they uh, raided areas in the Negev, in this case belonging to the Cherethites. And, uh, and furthermore, on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb. Now, Caleb, you've heard of him. Israel's about to get ready to go into the promised land, and Moses, being smart, sends 12 spies on a kind of a reconnaissance mission, you know, take the lay of the land. Caleb is one of them. Joshua and Caleb of the 12 bring back a minority report. They said, let's go. It's good stuff. And they brought back a sample of grapes, a clump of grapes in Hebrew is called Eshkol Echad. And if you go to Israel today, the symbol of the ministry of tourism is a figure of Joshua and Caleb carrying a big old lump of grapes. Uh, last year, for the first time, I've been going to Israel for over 20 years. Last year, the first time, I was in a valley called the Eshkol Valley. That's the valley where uh, Joshua and Caleb and the boys first entered the promised land and spied it out, brought back a clump of grapes to say, that's a good land, we ought to take it. Anyway, Caleb was a good guy. He was rewarded. He got a city in that neck of the woods called, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Hebron. We call it Hebron. Hebron. That, that was given over to Caleb, just to fill you in. Anyway, the Amalekites raided his territory as well. Furthermore, the Egyptian person says, and we burned Ziklag with fire. The Egyptian has no idea who he's talking to. He doesn't know he's talking to David. That was his city. We burned the city with fire. David must have exercised great self-restraint at this point. Don't you think? Your wife, well, in his case, wives, 
plural, were carried off. People's wives, children, everything is gone. This guy was privy to it all. We burned down Ziklag. David could have choked that guy, but he didn't do it right then. I suppose he knew a few things. One, he's a good source of intelligence information. Don't kill him. Two, he's a slave. He's not the most culpable one. His master is. Well, anyway, this, this goes, by the way, do you think David ran upon this Egyptian guy in the desert by chance? Well, you're right about that. There's no way it happens. This is the sovereignty of God. Remember, God guaranteed him victory, and God is his supply. Listen, if you're a nomad in this neck of the woods, you can hide out for years. I've been there. There's caves and hollows and all kinds of places. No one's going to find you if you don't want to be found. If you're a nomadic in, uh, raider, as were the Amalekites, David could be in pursuit of them for years and fall short of it. But God says, no, we don't have time for that. He provides this Egyptian in the desert a great source of intelligence information so David and the boys can locate the bad guys and deal with them, get back home, lickety-split. So that kind of is what happens. So verse 15, David said to him, will you bring me down to this band? And he said, the man said, swear to me by God that you'll not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will bring you down to this band. So he's, he's, he's smart. He knows his life is in jeopardy. He works out this deal with David, and we're not told specifically, but I imagine based on the next verse, David said, deal, because here's what happened, verse 16. When he had brought him down, the man brought David down to where the Amalekites were. Behold, what were they doing? Well, they were spread over all the land. Now, that is not a good battle formation. You know, they, you know what they're thinking? They're just thinking... We're safe, we're sound, we're cool. Nobody could get with us. It's party time. And they're just laying down their arms. And not that they had any advanced guards around the perimeter. Perimeter of what? They're scattered out, this kind of deal. And what are they doing? Well, they're eating, drinking, and dancing. But that's what victorious soldiers do, you know. They're carrying on. Why? Well, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Folks, many are fooled. And to thinking all is well, and then suddenly the party is over. That's what's going to happen here. That's what happens in the world today. Everyone's doing their thing. Don't talk to me about God and judgment and getting ready. It's party time. And then all of a sudden the party is over. In fact, there's a passage about this in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verses 26, 27. It says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah... So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. As in the days of Noah, so it will be in the time of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes back, he doesn't come as he did the first time. First time was the sacrificial lamb of God. Second time will be lion of Judah. First time he came to judge sin. Second time to judge sinners, partying, doing their thing. Suddenly, it's judgment day. So that's what happens. And so we read about it, verse 17. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Now, this looks harsh. How do you square it with the goodness and compassion of God? He doesn't need a defense, but let me take time to give one. How did God authorize all this? And he did. 
earlier on gave a mandate to the first king of Israel, Saul, to totally wipe out the Amalekites. Yes, he did. Saul failed to comply with God's mandate. David, who will be the second king of Israel, did what Saul should have done. By the way, if Saul was faithful to God's commandment, we wouldn't be reading all this in 1 Samuel. There would be no Amalekites to mess with the Israelites. By the way, a, 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 a descendant of Amalek is a guy, perhaps you heard of him, named Haman. The whole book of Esther uh, is about this guy who wanted to destroy the Jews. Haman was an Amalekite. We wouldn't have all that Haman stuff if God's leaders just did what God told them to do. Anyway, Saul failed to do it. And I want to remind you about where God said, wipe out the Amalekites. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'll read you a couple verses beginning in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, Samuel was then alive. He's deceased now. Samuel was a premier prophet or representative of God to ancient Israel. Samuel said to Saul, first king, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Boy, that ought to be the first thing a newly elected, appointed leader gets together. A leader ought to say, government's God's idea. I better do what he wants me to do. That's not exactly happening today, but it ought to happen. And so Samuel says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Uh, the Amalekites are descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Israel is coming up from Egypt to go into the promised land. The Amalekites are giving them a hard time. When Israel crosses the Jordan River to get into the land of promise, the Amalekites continue to give them a hard time. God doesn't like it. So he says back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, now go and strike Amalek. Utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's what God said. How do you square it with the compassion of God? Totally decimate the Amalekites, says God. How, why? Well, let me refer you to something God said way earlier than this. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said to, his name was Abram at the time. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. Today, we refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. There's no condition in it. It's God saying, I'm doing this. You have nothing to do with it. Not you, nor your people. I've chosen to do this. I have chosen to single out your people for blessing, and I'll curse those who curse them. Those are the Jews. Now, why did God choose the Jews? You tell me. It's random from my point of view. Now, I could see if there was something hot about the Jews. There's not. <laughs> Trust me on this. They're better than any other people. Oh, that's why God chose them. No, we are not. No, nothing like that. If anything, God chose us not because of inherent virtue, the opposite. My people might very well be the people group whom in the history of humankind has squandered more spiritual privilege than any other people group. Yeah, maybe that's why God chose us. Why? You choose the most undeserving people group on earth through whom to manifest your grace. And you can really do it. Because no one would dare say, God made a covenant with the Jews because they got it going on. We don't. 
Now, why does God say, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you? I'll tell you why. God is unseen. He's incorporeal. He doesn't have a corpus. He doesn't have a body. He's unseen. I'm not talking about God in the form of man, Jesus. Apart from Jesus, you don't see God. He is spirit. But God is a communicating God, a God of revelation. He wants to reveal his nature to the creatures, the humankind, the people he has made. How does he do it? He chooses a people group called the Jews, and he decides to manifest through them two things, human nature and divine nature. Human nature, the Jews, even in the most privileged situation, they sin. Through Jewish people, we see... Uh, that humankind has a sin nature, even in, under the best of circumstances. And through the Jews, we get a revelation or an exhibition of divine nature. In spite of the unfaithfulness of the Jews, God remains faithful. Human nature, in contrast to divine nature. Though Israel has broken her promises, God will not break his. How do I know God keeps his word? Because he manifested his integrity and reliability through his transaction historically through Jewish people. Could you please explain to me why Jewish people exist today? It makes no sense to me. Far greater nations have come and gone, but Israel still exists. I don't get it. Folks, uh, here in May, Israel is celebrating its 70th birthday as a modern state. May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, first prime minister of Israel, made the declaration that Israel is a state, the state of Israel, he called it. In fact, when we go to Israel, we go to the very building in which he made this declaration. Seventy years ago, please explain to me, how in the world did that happen? Three years after the Holocaust, a people group is decimated. There's 12 million Jews, 6 million perish in Nazi Germany. How do six million survive it? And how do they, three years later, Holocaust survivors beaten down, how in the world do they manage to get back to their ancient country after over 2,000 years of being out of it? You say, boy, those Jews are tough. You got it wrong. Nobody's that tough. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob keeps his word. That's the only fit conclusion. 70 years ago, Israel made. Now, God says, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And this is why. To oppose Israel is to oppose God. Now, I didn't say you support everything the Israeli government does. No, no, no. no. I'm not saying that. I didn't say that. I just said you're either for Israel or against her. And it's not about Israel. If you're not on the right side of the issue of Israel, then you're on the wrong side of the issue with God. Because God says... I've staked my reputation on her continuation. So if you're one of these people who thinks Israel has no right to the land, we ought to drive the Jews into the sea, you're going to have some trouble with Israel's God. Now, why, again, does God want to preserve the Jews? I must emphasize this. It's not because they're so hot and all the rest. No way. Man, I can introduce you to three or four of my aunts and uncles, and you'll know right away. <clears throat> It's because inexplicably he chose a people group simply to be exhibit A. They're exhibit A of my grace and mercy. And you know why that's important? If God ceased to keep his promises to Israel, then you're next. But you'll never be next because God has never broken his word to Israel. That's the point. Christians can be assured that we will come into our place of promise undeservedly. That's heaven because we can see how God has responded to the Jews who are just as unworthy as we are.
It's by God's grace and mercy. So God's reputation hinges on the continuation, perpetuation of the Jews. That's why you don't want to mess with Israel. You want to be on the right side of things. Now, there are people gearing up to mess with Israel again. A couple weeks ago, there was a meeting of three interesting parties, the leader of Turkey, of Iran, and Russia. Very interesting. The leader of Turkey is a man named Erdogan. That's his last name. He's a Muslim man who has a passion for reestablishing the glories of the ancient Ottoman Empire. That's his agenda. The Iranian leader is a Muslim man who is interested in ushering in the return of the next Mahdi, they call him, successor to Muhammad, so that the world is under the new caliphate of Islamic influence. But the leader of Iran knows the precursor to the return of Muhammad's successor is worldwide cataclysm. That's why Iran is ready to push the button and go to war. That's why a deal, a nuclear disarmament kind of deal with Iran, betrays, at best, sheer and utter ignorance, at worst, demonic deception. Billions of American tax dollars went in to some kind of nuclear arrangement with Iran who are laughing at us now. That was the worst deal in the history of humankind. But anyway, that's his agenda. Now, the third party, Putin from Russia, he's not an ideologue. He's not a Muslim. He's worse. He wants to be the next czar. He wants the czar thing in Israel, I mean, in in Russia to come. But here's the other deal. Do you know Russia's in big-time economic trouble? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, your people group, you know, here's what your people do. Your constituents turn against you when economically they're not so good. You always need a good distraction. So here's what's happening. They have oil in Russia, but it costs almost as much to get it out of the ground as it's worth. So Russia's got to go to the Middle East to get oil reserves. Isn't it interesting that Russia, isn't this, it's strange to me. Russia's in Syria. How did Russia end up in Syria? Well, I didn't thank our last president for that. He left a leadership void, and Russia filled it real nice and quick. So they have a big presence in Syria. So, th- so they have the, there's a three egomaniacs. Let me tell you something. They hate each other, and they have nothing in common except a greater contempt for Israel. That's joining them together. I'll tell you why. It's a real battle against Satan and Savior. Satan read the book, the Bible. He knows Jesus is king of kings, worthy of all glory and worship. He knows about a temple to be reconstructed, a good one one day in Israel, in which Jesus receives worship. Satan hates this. He wants the worship, which is due the Lord. Satan figured this out. He's evil, but he's smart. Satan figured out. He read the Bible. Oh, God has this attachment to these Jews. All I got to do is get rid of the Jews, drive them into the sea, and then I can make God out to be a liar. He didn't fill his promises to the Jews. What makes you naive Christians think he's going to fulfill his promises to you for crying out loud? And so Satan is really stirring all this up, and things are happening. To the north of Israel is a wonderful country called Lebanon, but it is not wonderfully managed right now. A terrorist group called Hezbollah, that means party of Allah, is in control. Their leader, Nasrallah, says, we already got thousands of missiles pointed at Israel. We can wipe them out. That's in the north. Yeah, you dip around here, and you go over to the east, northeast. Now, that's Syria. Syria's right on Israel's border, Golan Heights. Now, in Israel, you have five Iranian military installations. Now, I don't know how many Russian ones. Russia just said 
Uh, they're going to provide Syria with an air defense system so that these Israelis can't take out their military installations. You know, Israel bombed them a little while ago. They, uh, in conjunction with two of our allies, Britain and France, where were the rest? <laughs> you tell me. On that uh, venture uh, into Syria, just happened a few weeks ago, take it, you know, because Bashar Assad uh, used chemical weapons on his own people, you know this. UN, everybody says that's crossing the red line. No biological or chemical weapons. Well, where's the doggone world community when this happens? Well, the United States got together with France and Britain. They went over on a joint mission, 105 missiles. Uh, the Syrians said we took out most of them. They don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, we bombed three installations. They're supposed to be chemical factories. Did we succeed? Secretary of Defense Mattis, Marine General, he says, yeah, we, we destabilized their chemical efforts for years to come. I hope he's right. I don't think so. You know, because the world community, we gave plenty of notice to people that we're going to bomb them. Uh, I, gave, I think that gave time to Assad to move out his stuff. I don't know if we hit anything, to tell you the truth. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> so you have that going on uh, over there. So they have a Russian presence and an Iranian presence right on Israel's border over there. Uh, in the northeast, you dip a little, little down and go around here, and you've got Gaza, and you read about Gaza and protests and thousands storming a fence separating Gaza from Israel. And Israel's taking a hit again for killing these innocent Gazans. Uh, 80% of those who've died, it is a tragedy, who've died in this protest are uh, uh, names identified on, uh, as list, uh, on a terrorist list. They're terrorists. This thing of innocent Gazans who the mil Israeli military is arbitrarily killing is just not true. By the way, I've been there like nine bazillion uh, uh, times. Things are not exactly what the news said. But anyway, here's my point. But, and then, of course, you, got, you have Israel's adversaries right within the land, millions of uh, Muslim people ready to just revolt. So on every front, Israel's in trouble. Now, here's what happens also. Our President Trump, you know about this, declared that we're moving our embassy to Jerusalem. You know about this? In May. He wants it to correspond with the celebration of Israel's 70th year. It's a nice gesture, but I guess the word got out. The Muslim world is going crazy over this. Not only is the U.S. moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, other countries are following suit. Not a ton of them, some. Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Honduras, I think, Guatemala. Yeah, interesting. Well, the uh, Muslim community worldwide is going crazy because the Quran teaches, oh, my goodness, you cannot allow people to have land previously possessed by Muslims. It's an insult to Prophet Muhammad. So all this is, is going on. Here's my point. It's going to break out against Israel. Again, at any time. And I don't care how powerful Israel is. The odds are against her. From a human point of view, it's over for Israel. She will cease to exist. She's being driven into the sea. It's almost an indefensible country, for crying out loud, just from east to west. I mean, you, you don't have much room even to defend yourself. How's this going to work out? Genesis 12, 3, I'll bless those who bless thee. And I will curse those who curse thee. Just as great nations have come and gone, and Israel is still walking around, so too it will come again. Because Israel is so good. No, I did not say that. 
Please don't ever catch me saying that. No, no. I want to promote a pro-Israel position, but not because Jewish people or Israelis got it all together. The biblical narrative tells me God has chosen Israel as a vehicle by which he is glorified. That's all I'm saying. And I do not want to turn against, I don't want to turn against God. So be, be, be very, but anyway, it's going to happen again. But you'll see in some inexplicable way, God will intervene as he has historic. I mean, where are the Babylonians? Where are the Assyrians? Where are the Nazis? Well, I know we got modern day counterparts, but the, the Third Reich was powerful. Oh, my heavens. Militarized, industrialized, geniuses, military, missile experts, great weaponry. All, you know, all this kind of, how did the Jews survive that and get their own country? You tell me. I don't know how. It's evidence of almighty, almighty. By the way, I don't know what's happening in Germany today. Germany decided not to team up with us in, in, uh, in bombing Syria. I don't know what's happening over there, for crying out loud. There's a lot of economic. By the way, our president is scheduled to have a meeting, I think, in June with the leader of North Korea. You have a lot of hopes about that one? Yeah. I don't see that guy to be very repentant at all. I don't know what they're going to talk about. I'm glad they're getting together. I think one thing he knows, say whatever you want about President Trump, you know. Uh, he doesn't like being pushed around, I notice. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, if nothing else, the bombing of maybe empty factories in Syria told the North Korean leader, don't push. Don't push. I hate that it has to be that way. But I'm afraid in this dangerous neighborhood called the world, you cannot bring people to the peace table except you're stronger than they are. Got to be stronger. So anyway, all this stuff is kind of going on. Every once in a while, I'm tempted to get worried about it. And then I remember what God said uh, about Israel. And I read the last book of the Bible. This is always a good thing to do. I read ahead. 144,000 Jews from each of the designated identifiable 12 tribes of Israel are alive during a terrible time called the time of Jacob's trouble. And they go through the world sharing Christ. They're all Jewish believers. They share Christ. And they're killed for it. They're martyred, but there they are. And then we read about the temple to exist during the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ. And, and we read about the reestablishment of the Feast of Israel and all this other kind of stuff, which tells me God's not done with the Jews yet, and I don't think we should be either. Be careful. Now, you didn't hear me say a Jewish soul is worth more than any other soul, did you? That's called racism. I'm not a racist. I'm a biblicist. A Jew is not worth more than any Arab person. What's our posture to Arab Muslim people? What do you mean? We're ambassadors for Christ. We should show the same respect and love and interest in bridge building as we would with anybody. A, a, a saved Jew is not worth more than a saved Arab person. No, we, don't, we don't have the luxury of hate. That's not our deal. But let's not be stupid. Let's know the biblical facts for crying out loud. And I don't want to get my geopolitical information from CNN. I want to get it from the Bible. As God was here with David and the Amalekites, I'm telling you, I haven't spoken to an Amalekite in like a long time. <laughs> but Jews are still around. Fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so 
verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. Good night. One is enough. But (laughs) I'm just saying. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. Could you please tell me how that happened? Oh, David was a great military leader. Oh, come on. No one's that good. You don't have a bunch of raiders, crazy, drunken soldiers. They took your wives and everything, and they're still alive. That doesn't happen. There's a lot of stuff happens in war. You got your family. You got your goods. Nothing was missing. Folks, this is the sovereignty of God. You don't explain it any other way. So verse 20, David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. And when David came to the 200 men, remember them? The 200 men who were left too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Bessor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David, even a commander, a good guy, ethical guy, can have soldiers who are creeps, and he does. So then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David, they said, because they, the guys who stayed back at the brook, because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. So here's what these guys are saying. They're saying, we're not giving them a thing. They didn't go out to battle with us. We're not giving them any of the spoil. Here's what we'll do. We'll give them their family back, their wives and kids. We don't want them. So they're giving them their family, but no means to support their family. How's that going to help? Well, what's David's response to this? Verse 23, David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. David got it right. They didn't win victory because they're so hot. They won victory because God gave it to them. And David realized everything he has is due to the grace and mercy of God. Therefore, he must graciously and mercifully give some of it away. He discovered a principle of biblical stewardship. I hope we have discovered. Can I ask you, what do you possess that you were not given by God? Tell me. You said, no, but no, 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 I worked for what you worked. Who gave you the health? Who gave you the job? Who gave you the wherewithal to make that money? You don't have a thing but that God didn't give it. Therefore, if everything we has, have is sourced in the grace and mercy of God, how could it be that we would withhold it, not give a portion graciously and mercifully to others? Folks, that's the principle of biblical giving. Now, you don't compare yourself to what someone else is giving. Don't get into that. You know what the New Testament says? As you are able. Now, God's given us all different abilities. There's no big trip laid on you. To the extent God has given, give back a portion. David got this all right. His men didn't get it. David is acquainting them. We won this victory because of God's grace. Everything we have is because of God. How dare we graciously, uh, ungraciously withhold a portion of what we have from others. That's his argument. So verse 24, and who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Now, David had one army, but not everyone did the same thing in the army. Some were frontline troops. Others were not. 
beans, bullets, bombs behind the scenes. But I'm going to tell you, you need those. You can't have an army without a supply sergeant. <laughs> you can't have an army without a cook. You can't even have an army without someone working in medical records. Now, why should the person working in medical records, making sure your shots are up to date, why shouldn't that person share in the fruits of victory? Just like the airborne ranger who's out there deliberately in harm's way. Not everybody in the army has to do the same thing. It's one fighting unit. Why am I bringing this all out? It's the body of Christ. Not everyone in the body of Christ just does the same thing. Some are frontline troops, missionaries out there, foreign lands, rough territory. Not everyone is able to do it. But we're one army. Even those who can't do it can pray for them and support them to keep them out in the field. And when they win victories, spiritual victories, and increase our territory, spiritually speaking, those of us who prayed and supported, we share in the triumph in Christ Jesus. We don't have second-class citizens in the body of Christ. That's just not the way we do it. We're body of Christ. The ear can't say to the eye, I'm more important than you. The arm can't say to the leg, I don't need you. We do different things and diverse things, but everyone's necessary. We all share in triumph in Christ. That's the way it works. David understood this. Now, let me tell you something. Christians serve differently at different stages of life. As you get older, your heart is still there to serve, but your body says you're not going to be able to do it the way you used to. Just as these guys who had to stay back and watch the baggage at the Brook Bessor, emotionally and bodily, they couldn't go on to the battle. They did other stuff. What'd they do? They stayed with the baggage. So that's not important. Oh, yeah? What if the enemy gets a hold of all those supplies? You can't support the guys up front. They performed a valuable function. Don't devalue what you're able to do even as you get older. When I was younger, I went to, uh, I just got out of the service. I went back to, the, to Germany, to USER, the United States Army Europe headquarters, Heidelberg, Germany. <clears throat> and I went to be a missionary with a group called the Navigators to minister to military folk. I went. All I needed was $600 a month to make a go of it. It wasn't much. I worked for some, raised the rest. And then I recruited three other guys, prior military, who I was in the service with. We got a little apartment in Germany, outside of Heidelberg, Germany. Four of us lived there. And our goal was to minister to American military personnel in that neck of the woods. Four of us. We could do it. We all made it over there in less than three weeks. Everything ready to go. Well, what we need? Nothing. We could travel light. What do you need? We never made our beds. We didn't have any bed. You know, as far as food, we ate beans. We didn't, no one knew how to cook. You just eat stuff. You get pizza, you eat beans, whatever the deal is. What do you need? We're young guys. We're healthy. We're well. We have no family attachments, nothing like that. We knocked them dead. Every day we hit it. We'd sleep maybe four hours. We hit it, we hit it, we hit it. We did all kinds of stuff. Sleeps for babies. I used to have, I trained these guys. You have an expression. I said, do not ever say, take it easy. These tell them, no, when we leave one another, we'll say, pursue with vigor. That was years ago. <laughs> I think about it now, and I'm exhausted. <laughs> Can I tell you what I'm going to do when we finish up here when I go home? I'm going to take it easy so that I can pursue with vigor on Monday morning. <laughs> I'm going to take a nap. Yeah, I'm going to take a nap. I used to feel bad. Man, I can't do the stuff I used to do. I was hot and on fire. 
But then I realize I'm still on fire. My mind, my heart is right. My body's not. I can't do the things as a 68-year-old I used to do as a 28-year-old. That's just the way it is. Can't do it. It doesn't work that way. You know, I've been sick for the last several weeks. So I go back to the doctor for a checkup. I say, Doc, I'm just frustrated. Why is this lasting so long? He said, because you're old. <laughs> I paid a guy to insult me. You just don't get over stuff the way you used to. That's very true. A young person, you know, you get something, you, b- you bounce back, you're ready to go. You get older, my goodness, that stuff hangs on for a, a long time. But wait a second, that's not a heart problem, that's a body problem. These 200 who stayed back by the brook, they weren't cowards. They didn't stay back for the wrong reason. Emotionally, physically, they just couldn't make it. The commander, David, recognized this. He said, therefore, they should share in the spoils of our, uh, of our triumph. So should every member of the body of Christ. So when we get older, folks, uh, you start feeling I have no useful function anymore. And younger people sometimes want to put you out to pasture. No, 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 that's all wrong. I'll tell you why. We're the ones who stay with the baggage. What does that mean? We protect what we have. What do we have? Everything we've already accomplished and come to believe in. We protect our theology. Younger people need us. They're so creative, so progressive, so innovative. They come up with innovative theologies. We're not looking for a new twist on the Bible. We're looking for a new understanding of what is. We don't need a new doctrinal statement. We're not looking. We're going to guard that baggage. That's our baggage. That's what keeps us going. Us older folks are, are, are a little more prone to watch the baggage and see when it's being threatened by those who would take it from us. We're going to preserve the institutions of society, including our church. We're going to protect it and guard it. It's physical plant. We're the ones who take it seriously. We're going to make sure that we don't have goofy stuff hanging up on the walls, that the building is not defaced. We're going to be good stewards of this, and we're going to be good stewards of truth, theology, doctrine. That's what older people are prone to do, guard, protect, sustain what we have, guard the baggage. What about the younger ones? They need to go out to war. They need to increase our territory. We're going to protect what we have. The younger ones need to get us more. Spiritually speaking, you understand. They need to expand the kingdom. As a general rule, as we get older, we become sustainers of what we have. But we still need innovators. Those are the younger people. We need them to innovate, but they need us to to sustain. I'm so pleased here at Sagemont, we have mixed generations on our staff. I sit across the table from some younger people and they talk about their ideas and their suggestions. And as they're talking, you know, I keep a, like a poker face. Shouldn't use that term, but inside I'm thinking, good night, I'm exhausted. Just <laughs> listening to this dreamer. But then I'm also thinking, man, God, I'm glad he's sitting across the table from me because there's no way I can do what he's talking about doing. I'm just going to be his cheerleader. I'm going to root for him and everything like that. I'll stay by the baggage when he goes off and pulls off all this stuff. So the younger people need us, and we need the younger people. Older people are threatened by younger people taking their spots. Don't do that. Make room at the table. We can't go out to the war the way they, they did. There's just no way that could happen. It can't happen. We need the younger people. The younger people need us. They're not stable enough, to be honest with you. They're not mature enough, to be honest with you. 
They're not discerning enough. They're not diplomatic enough. They don't know how to preserve what is. Their good ideas are so good, they're so passionate about it, that they'll foist it upon a church even if it blows it apart. Well, those older people won't let it happen. We'll say a good idea foisted upon a church at the wrong time is a bad idea. And we can preach patience to them. Go slow. I told the younger guy the other day, you know what your problem is? You're ministering to people where you think they should be. You got to minister to people where they are. Younger people don't know this. So they need an old coot like me. I can't run around on the front lines anymore. I don't want to. I don't feel led to it. Nothing like that. But I can still make a contribution. So could you. And we all have to share in the spoils of the spiritual war. Forgive that metaphor. We're all marching to Zion, though we do it in kind of a different way. Now, these soldiers who stayed back at the brook, they're heroes. They had fought many military campaigns before. They didn't have a hard problem. They just couldn't go out to battle anymore. Many of us as older people, we got a good track record being in a lot of spiritual battles. Don't put us out to pasture. And don't devalue yourself if you're getting this color hair like mine. Don't say, well, I'm the last phase of my life, my worth and value, my contribution is being diminished. Well, if you want to talk yourself into that, you go right ahead. But someone's got to stay with the baggage. There's plenty of stuff we must and can still do. Now, some are retired and nearing retirement. Retirement doesn't, doesn't mean you stop serving. It just means you serve on your schedule. When you stop serving? When you die. And then not for too long, because as soon as you die, boom, you get translated to the presence of the Lord. And you know what we do in heaven? Some people think we just sit around and play the harp. <laughs> we worship God and serve him throughout eternity. Now, you say, well, that doesn't sound so attractive. I don't want to go. But you don't get it. You and I cannot imagine what it's like to worship Jesus undistractedly and with a pure motive. We can't know what it is. Because I'll tell you what we're doing when we're worshiping. We're sizing up everyone who's leading us. Man, good night, Bill. That shirt's too tight. <laughs> Come on, Pastor. You said you're coming. You're going to land that plane. You took off again. That's what we're doing. This music, yeah, I, I, I suppose the words are good, but I don't know because the guitar is so loud. That's what we're doing. We can't worship God undistractedly here. We can't in heaven. What about service? Nobody serves with a pure motive here. Nobody does. Can you imagine serving with a pure motive? But I know people who, if you don't get a pat on the back for what you're doing, they stop doing it. I sympathize. I'm like that too. In heaven, that's not an issue. You're not looking for someone to pat you on the back. Can you imagine none of these obstacles to worship and service? That is heaven. So nobody stops serving, regardless of how old or young you are. You just do it in different ways, for crying out loud. And we don't put down one another for, for serving in God's army in, in different ways. So David had it right. So verse 26, it has been from that day forward uh, that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Everyone who serves shares in the victory. Now here's what happens. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And in the final verses of this chapter are uh, given the names of the cities and villages in Judah who were recipients of, of uh, 
David's graciousness. Now, why did he do this? I'll tell you why. He's saying thank you to them. Because in many of these cities, that's where David and his men hid out when they were fleeing from Saul. And these people granted them safe passage. David's saying thank you. Furthermore, remember earlier we read about the Amalekites. They didn't just attack and raid Ziklag. They raided a bunch of areas in Judah, a lot of which are these cities. They carried off their stuff too. And David says, I'm bringing it home to you. That's a good guy to do that, don't you think? Now, uh, there's another reason I think why David all this did all this. Soon he's going to be anointed the second king of Israel in Hebron. How do you think all these people are going to vote? Hey, he's our guy. So it's a bit of diplomacy. But even though he's using wise diplomacy here, I don't think his motive was self-ish. I don't think it was self-aggrandizement. I think he was serving God's people, and that's why God entrusted this high position to him. And that goes true with any of us over here. Not a one of us who serves as a lay person, as a full-time minister, not a one of us has a right to do it for personal gain. Has to be for God's people. Remember what Jesus said after his crucifixion, resurrection? Remember he said, do you love me? What's the mark of it? Feed my sheep. That's the nature of our service. Take care of those for whom Jesus died. We all do it in different ways. Make a different contribution. But we all do it because it's the mark of our love for the head of the church. Take care of the people in the church. I think that was David's motive. So a full-time minister who comes, did you know here at Sagemont Church, the church provides the staff with lots of stuff, including, as an example, dental insurance. You know, we have dental insurance over here. If ever a person applied for a ministerial position at this church, because we have dental insurance, we got the wrong guy. Or if a staff member, if our dental insurance comes to an end and the staff member says, I got to start looking around <laughs> to where I can get dental insurance or something like that, we got the wrong guy. This church is very gracious. It's finance team, it's personnel team. We all make these decisions on behalf of the staff. We are well taken care of. But even if we weren't, too bad. If that's the reason a minister is ministering, his package, oh my goodness. That's the wrong person. The privilege in serving is not to get needs met, though they are. It's to meet needs. Now, that's not true just of people in full-time Christian service. That's true of all of us. That's the reason we serve, because Jesus says it's the mark of your love from me. How could you not take care of those for whom I died? That's what he says. And we all do it in different ways. Just find out a way by which you serve. One of our classes today, we spoke about one of our ladies, very seriously ill. Her husband, a loving man, you know, in sickness and in health, is with her in the hospital. He's getting really, really tired. But they have elderly parents for whom they care. Meals need to be provided. And this lady has started a whole thing whereby meals are provided and so on and so forth. And I thought to myself, she doesn't get any upfront time like I do. You wouldn't know her name if I mentioned her to you. Don't you think she should share in the spoils of victory as, just as those of us who get all this upfront stuff? Is our contribution more valuable than hers? No way. Now, I want to tell you something. I cannot do what she did. Those people do not need a meal I prepared. <laughs> it would be the last supper. 
So I don't sit here and say, oh, I got to sign up on that list. No. Find your place. Do it. Don't compare yourself to others. I do not sign up for every time I hear a need. No, no, no. That's responding to the need instead of the guidance of God. There's all kinds of needs. It's not meant for you to volunteer to try to meet all of them. What's your contribution? You stay with that. You protect it. You stay rested and strong enough to do that particular deal. It may be staying with the baggage. Anyway, I can't, I can't make do with that lady, but I'm so grateful. Now, why should someone receive more of the spoils of war than that particular? Well, but she's not going to. I'm telling you that. Our commander-in-chief, Jesus, is leading our triumphant victory parade, and we're going to all sing together victory in Jesus, and none of us are getting to sing it louder than that lady is right there. Find your place. Don't devalue your... Uh, the quality and nature of your service. Don't think now that you get gray hair, white hair, your back hurts, your knees hurt, your eyes are going, this or that. You, you can't serve. There's lots of things you can do that others cannot and will not do. And don't worry about what you cannot do. One time a person here in the church rebuked me for not doing a certain thing. She's right. I said, can I tell you why I'm not doing that thing? She said, yes, I want to know. I said, because I'm doing other things. That's it. You cannot do everything. You ought to do what God has called and equipped you to do. And don't worry about what people think. So I don't think that lady was very impressed with me at all. Uh, I said, I don't plan on doing that particular thing. But don't you think it's important? I think it's very important. Absolutely. That's why someone like you obviously has a burden for it. Bless you. So you can't be doing that stuff. So we, we read in four class, before class, all kinds of stuff that can be done. Listen, uh, uh, Lord willing, I plan on coming here May 26th. I hope you do too. Put a flag on the ground. Every flag represents a life. Every flag, 38,000. Chuck has asked that people, if you can, you make these devices, you know, like a pogo stick thing. You step on it, it puts a hole in the ground and all the rest. I thought to myself, that is a great idea. In a million years, I couldn't make a device like that. I have no idea what he's talking about. But I got a screwdriver. I got a hammer. And I'll get down on the ground for about two minutes. And then I'm going to find a guy who made one of those devices. And when he puts it down for two seconds, I shall pick it up. That's what I did last year. So I can't do certain stuff. I can't lay out the course. You know, we got these engineering guys. They're going to lay it all out. But I can put a flag in the ground. Then on Friday, the Friday after, that's June 1st, 6 o'clock, we're going to come out. We're going to remove the flags with respect. I could do that. I can reach down. I could pull a flag. I can kick off whatever dirt's attached to the stem. I could roll it up, put it in a plastic container so that we can use it again if the Lord tarries again next year. I could do stuff. I can't mastermind the whole project. Chuck's doing it. I can't do it. It's overwhelming to me, all the details and all this stuff. I cannot do that. Don't worry about it. I can't lay out the course. I can't do a, I can't do a bunch of stuff. I can put a flag in the ground, and I can pull it. You understand what I'm saying? And when we finish, hundreds and hundreds of us should share in the joy and the celebration of showing, memorializing the ultimate sacrifice of those who, who died for our country and even winning the opportunity maybe to embrace a visitor who, who comes to, on our campus to view those flags at that time. Can't do everything. Can do some, some things. My son was a chaplain. He was in the 82nd Airborne. 
He jumped at airplanes. He's nuts. He, uh, he went to advanced airborne school. He's a jump master. Very few Army chaplains who are, have that qualification. Jump master. I asked him, why did you do that? He said, I didn't want one soldier to look me in the eye and say, chaplain, you don't know what we're going through. Yes, I do. He was in Afghanistan. We'd talk every once in a while. He said, I said, what do you do? Give me a sample. What do you do in the day? He said, pray with the guys in the morning. And then we load up in Humvees and we go out. Yeah, but you're a chaplain. You don't have to go out. It's called beyond the line. You don't have to go out beyond. You're a chaplain. I was baiting him. He said, that's right. I don't have to. But how can I pray for him in the morning and hope they make it back in the afternoon and be their chaplain? I said, that's the right answer. That's what he did. And nine of those guys died. Nine. Some from Texas. We'll put out flags in their names. I was a chaplain. I can't jump out of airplanes. (laughs) Wouldn't want to. Couldn't. But it's one United States Army. No offense to other branches of the service. That's the only one I'm familiar with. But, But everyone in the United States Army has a role to perform. We wear the same uniform. Subject to the same challenges, defeats, and victories. Everyone shares. How much more the body of Christ? Age is not a disqualifier from continuing to serve for the glory of God. Don't let that happen. Make way for younger people, but don't let them put you out to pasture. Someone's got to watch the baggage. That's us. And we're grateful for you younger people. Someone has to carry stuff for us. Next week, Lord willing, we'll read the last chapter in 1 Samuel. It's not a good one. What are you going to do? It's in the Bible. We have to deal with it. It's about death. We'll read about it next week, Lord willing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything. Everything. Thank you for saving us for something. For service that brings glory to your name. And there's no time limit on that. There's no statute of limitations on that. No way. Save to serve. So many ways, different ways. Perish the thought that we would uh, evaluate another or devalue another for not doing what, what some of us, the rest of us are doing. If we all did the same thing, the whole would not be greater than the sum of the individual parts. But it is in the body of Christ. Thank you for the way you have distributed gifts to each of us in, with such diversity and variety there's something for each of us to do and thank you oh god for telling us in advance each one of us will share in the victory which is in christ jesus in whose name we pray amen god bless you folks see you next time